Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Welcome to Mysteries Abound, a collection of stories about the unusual, the strange, the perplexing, and the downright odd. In our world today, Mysteries Abound. Welcome everyone to the Mysteries Abound podcast. This is your host Paul and this is episode 93. This show is entitled The Cornish Beaches Where Lego Keeps Washing Up. But to start with, something from the BBC.com. 10 Truly Bizarre Victorian Deaths Life in Victorian times was arguably considerably more dangerous than now, if the newspaper reports of the time are anything to go by, writes Jeremy Clay. Number 1. Killed by a mouse An equation familiar to anyone who sat through a few old episodes of Tom and Jerry. Women plus mice equal localised uproar. It's a sexist old TV trope, of course, but it played out for real in England in 1875, when a mouse dashed suddenly onto a work table in a South London factory. Into the general commotion which followed, a gallant young man stepped forward and seized the rodent. For a glorious moment, he was the saviour of the women who'd scattered. It didn't last. The mouse slipped out of his grasp, ran up his sleeve and scurried out again at the open neck of his shirt. In his surprise, his mouth was agape. In its surprise, the mouse dashed in. In his continued surprise, the man swallowed. That a mouse can exist for a considerable time without much air has long been a popular belief and was unfortunately proved to be fact in the present instance, noted the Manchester Evening News for the mouse began to tear and bite inside the man's throat and chest, and the result was that the unfortunate fellow died, after a little time, in horrible agony. 
Number two, crushed by his own invention. Sam Wardell couldn't afford to oversleep. He was the lamplighter in the New York town of Flatbush in the mid-1880s. He lit the streetlights in the evening and needed to be up early to put them out again at dawn. It wasn't a job for slobs. And so, with the boundless ingenuity of the age, he hit on a neat failsafe. He took a standard alarm clock and supercharged it, adding a Wallace and Gromit-style embellishment to ensure he woke in time. First he connected the clock by a wire to the catch he fitted to a shelf in his room. Then he placed a ten-pound stone on the shelf. When the alarm struck, the shelf fell and the stone crashed to the floor. Ta-da! It worked perfectly and perhaps would have carried on doing so if Wardell hadn't toyed with the configuration. One Christmas Eve he invited some friends round for a party and cleared his room of furniture to make space. When they left, he dragged his bed back into the room. He was tired and didn't pay much attention to where he put it. At 5am the next morning, the alarm sounded. The shelf fell. The stone dropped straight onto the sleeping Wardell's head. Number 3. Killed by a Coffin Henry Taylor died an ironic death. He was a pallbearer in London's Kensal Green Cemetery and was midway through a funeral when he caught his foot on a stone and stumbled. As he fell to the ground, the other bearers let go of the coffin, which fell on poor, prone Henry. The greatest confusion was created amongst the mourners who witnessed the accident, said the Illustrated Police News in November 1872, and the widow of the person about to be buried nearly went into hysterics. Number four, killed by eating her own hair. The doctors were baffled. The patient was seriously ill. That much was clear, but they couldn't fathom the cause. So when the 30-year-old died in a village in the English county of Lincolnshire, they asked her grieving relatives for permission to carry out a post-mortem. Whatever they imagined they might find, it can't possibly have been what they actually discovered. A solid lump, made up of human hair, weighing two pounds, and looking for all the world like a big black duck with a very long neck. This remarkable concretion had caused great thickening and ulceration of the stomach, and was the remote cause of her death said the Liverpool Daily Post in 1869. On inquiry, a sister stated that during the last 12 months she had known the deceased to be in the habit of eating her own hair. Number 5. Killed as a Zombie The funeral was in full swing when the lid of the coffin lifted and the corpse began to climb out. This was, needless to say, an unexpected turn of events. White-faced with fear, the priest and the mourners alike ran from the church of their Russian village and scattered to their homes, bolting their doors. The ghoul lurched after them, bursting into the house of an old woman who had not been quite so nimble with her lock. 
As the priest collected his senses, he realised the rampaging corpse was actually a coma patient who'd regained consciousness. Too late. The peasants in his parish had plucked up their nerve, armed themselves with guns and stakes, and set off for an exorcism. By the time the priest arrived on the scene, the zombie had been successfully returned to the other side, and the body thrown into a marsh. Number six, Torn to Pieces by Cats. You know how it is. You get a cat, seeking companionship and amusement, and are rewarded with the occasional tea time display of self-serving affection. It's charming. So you get another. And one more. Pretty soon your home makes visitors' eyes sting. People stop calling by. You let your hair grow wild. You enthusiastically take up muttering. In 1870, in Iran, a rich eccentric lady had cheerfully embarked on much this kind of path, breeding and buying cats to her heart's content and passing her days in an agreeable, if malodorous, blur of purrs. Then disaster struck. A fire broke out, and as it swept through the house, the cats were trapped behind a door. Two maids were sent to free them, but the blaze had driven the beasts berserk. The instant the door was opened, they flew at the unfortunate young women, tearing, scratching and biting them in a frenzy. Their injuries were so severe, they both died. Number seven, drowned by decorum. We all know the cliches. The Victorians were a bunch of hide-bound, thin-lipped, punctilious, moralising, etiquette-obsessed fun-sponges who would reach for the smelling salts at the mere glimpse of a table leg. It's a wild generalisation, of course, but sometimes, to revert to another cliché, clichés are true. Here's proof. In 1892, in Bermuda, a party of sailors were returning to their ship by steamboat, having been on shore leave in the capital. Sailors being sailors, there was a row. The row turned into a fight. One man went overboard. A marine began to strip off to save him, but was ordered immediately to stop by an officer who had spotted a boat with ladies on it nearby. The ladies in the boat manifested every description of sympathy with the unfortunate man, reported the Western Daily Press but seemed altogether opposed to the idea of an ordinary man springing into the sea unless duly and sufficiently attired in the garments which fashion rather than common sense has decided to be proper. The increasingly frantic efforts of the sailor to keep afloat suddenly concentrated minds. The officer asked for volunteers. Five men at once leapt to the rescue. But the sailor had drowned. Number eight, killed by a drunken bear. A quick quiz. You are offered a bear to keep as a pet. Do you A, turn it down. It's cruel to keep a bear as a pet. B, accept it. Perhaps you might teach it to drink booze too. In Vilna, then in Russia in 1891, there was a man who had answered B. The bear was large but tame but it had a taste for vodka. 
One day it bustled into a village tavern and grabbed a keg of vodka. The owner of the inn, Isaac Rabanovich, objected and tried to snatch it back. It would be an understatement to say that this was an error. In the chaotic scenes that ensued, the infuriated animal hugged to death the tavern keeper, then did the same to his two sons and daughter. The villagers found the drunken animal asleep on the floor in a pool of blood and alcohol, surrounded by its victims. The bear was immediately shot. Nine laughed himself to death. Almost 80 years before Monty Python's Ernest Scribbler created the funniest joke in the world, Farmer Wesley Parsons had a deadly gag all of his own. He was joking with friends in Laurel, Indiana in 1893 when he was seized by fits of uncontainable laughter and couldn't stop. He laughed for nearly an hour when he began hiccuping. Two hours later, he died from exhaustion. And finally, number 10, killed by a bet. It must have seemed like a good idea at the time. In the Spanish region of Navarre in 1879, two Frenchmen struck a bet to see which was the hardiest. The terms were these. After fasting for a day, they'd drink 17 glasses of wine each, then walk from Pamplona to a village six miles away. It was the height of summer, just to make it that extra bit more interesting. As one was far younger than the other, they hit on a handicap system. For every year's advantage the twenty-something had over his middle-aged rival, he'd carry a pound of dirt. So off they went, both lurching towards their goal, one staggering under the extra burden of sixteen pounds of earth. They hadn't gone far, needless to say, when the wager took a dark turn. The elder man collapsed and died. The younger, reported the Manchester Evening News at the time, escaped death only by the skin of his teeth. Gordon Goody is the type of gentleman criminal celebrated by George Clooney's Oceans trilogy. In the early 1960s, Goody was a dashing, well-dressed, seasoned thief who knew how to manipulate authority. At the height of his criminal game, he helped to plan and execute a 15-man heist that resulted in the largest cash theft in international history. Scotland Yard's ensuing investigation turned the thieves into celebrities for a British public stuck in a post-war recession funk. Authorities apprehended Goody and his team members, but they failed to uncover one important identity, that of the operation's mastermind, a postal service insider. Nicknamed the Ulsterman because of his Irish accent, The informant has gone unnamed for 51 years. From the www.smithsonianmag.com The big mystery behind the great train robbery may finally have been solved. 
and this is written by Carrie Hagan. It was a caper, an absolute caper, says Chris Long, the director of the upcoming documentary A Tale of Two Thieves. In the film, Gordon Goody, now 84 and living in Spain, reconstructs the crime. He is the only one of three living gang members to know the Ulsterman's name. At the end of the film, Goody confirms this identity, but he does so with hesitation and aplomb, aware that his affirmation betrays a gentleman's agreement honoured for five decades. At 3am on Thursday, August 8, 1963, a British mail train heading from Glasgow to London slowed for a red signal near the village of Cheddington, about 36 miles northwest of its destination. When co-engineer David Whitby left the lead car to investigate the delay, he saw that an old leather glove covered the light on the signal gantry. Someone had wired it to a cluster of 6-volt batteries and a hand lamp that could activate a light change. An arm grabbed Whitby from behind. If you shout, I will kill you, a voice said. Several men wearing knit masks accompanied Whitby onto the conductor's car where head engineer Jack Mills put up a fight. An assailant's crowbar knocked him to the ground. The criminals then detached the first two of the twelve cars on the train, instructing Mills, whose head bled heavily, to drive half a mile further down the track. In the ten cars left behind, 75 postal employees worked, unaware of any problem but a delay. The bandits handcuffed Whitby and Mills together on the ground. For God's sake, one told the bound engineers, don't speak because there are some right bastards here. In the second car, four postal workers guarded over two million pounds in small notes. Because of a bank holiday weekend in Scotland, consumer demand had resulted in a record amount of cash flow. This train carried older bills that were headed out of circulation and into the furnace. Besides the unarmed guards, the only security precaution separating the criminals from the money was a sealed door, accessible only from the inside. The thieves hacked through it with iron tools. Overwhelming the postal workers, they threw 120 mail sacks down an embankment where two Range Rovers and an old military truck awaited. Fifteen minutes after stopping the train, 15 thieves had escaped with £2.6 million. $7 million then, over $40 million today. Within an hour, a guard from the back of the train scouted the delay and rushed to the closest station with news of foul play. Alarms rang throughout Cheddington. The police spent a day canvassing farms and houses before contacting Scotland Yard. The Metropolitan Bureau searched for suspects through a criminal index of files that categorised 4.5 million felons by their crimes, methodologies and physical characteristics. It also dispatched to Cheddington its flying squad, a team of elite robbery investigators familiar with the criminal underground. Papers reported that in the city and its northern suburbs, carloads of detectives combed streets and houses, focusing on those homes of those named by underworld informants, and also on the girlfriends of London crooks. 
The New York Times called the crime a British Western and compared it to the darings of the Jesse James and Dalton Brothers gangs. British papers criticised the absence of a national police force, saying that a lack of communication between departments fostered an easier getaway for the lawbreakers. Journalists also balked at the lack of postal security and suggested that the Postal Service put armed guards on mail trains. The last thing we want is shooting matches on British railways, said the Postmaster General. The police knew that the crime required the assistance of an insider with a detailed working knowledge of postal and train operations. Someone who would have anticipated the lack of security measures, the amount of money, the location of the car carrying the money and the right place to stop the train. The Postal Service had recently added alarms to a few of its mail cars, but these particular carriages weren't in service during the robbery. Detective Superintendent G.E. MacArthur said the robbers would have known this. We are fighting here a gang that has obviously been well organised. All 15 of the robbers would be arrested, but the insider would remain free. For his role in planning the robbery, the Ulster man received a cut. The thieves split the majority of the money equally and remained anonymous, but to three people for decades. Only one of these three is still alive. Director Chris Long says that Gordon Goody has a 1950s view of crime that makes talking to him like warming your hands by a fire. Goody describes himself at the start of the film as just an ordinary thief. He recounts the details of his criminal past, including his mistakes, with a grandfatherly matter-of-factness. Characters like him don't exist anymore, continued Long. You're looking at walking history. While his fellow train gang members, Bruce Reynolds and Ronnie Biggs, later looked to profit from their criminal histories by writing autobiographies, Gordon Goody moved to Spain to live a quiet life and shunned the public in Long's words. The producers trusted Goody's information the more that they worked with him, but they also recognised that their documentary centred on a con artist's narrative. Simple research could verify most of Goody's details, but not the Ulsterman's real name. It was so common in Ireland that Long and Howley hired two private investigators to search through post office archives and the histories of hundreds of Irishmen who shared a similar age and name. Scotland Yard reached a breakthrough in their case on August 13, 1963, when a herdsman told police to investigate Leatherslade Farm, a property about 20 miles away from the crime. The man had grown suspicious over increased traffic around the farmhouse. When the police arrived, they found 20 empty mailbags on the ground near a three-foot hole and a shovel. The getaway vehicles were covered nearby. Inside the house, food filled kitchen shelves. The robbers had wiped away many fingerprints, but police lifted some from a Monopoly game board and a ketchup bottle. One week later, police apprehended a florist named Roger Cordry in Bournemouth. Over the next two weeks, tips led to the arrests of Cordry's accomplices. By January of 1964, authorities had enough evidence to try 12 of the criminals. Justice Edmund Davies charged the all-male jury to ignore the notoriety that the robbers had garnered in the press. 
Let us clear out of the way any romantic notions of daredevilry, he said. This is nothing less than a sordid crime of violence inspired by vast greed. On March 26, the jury convicted the men on charges ranging from robbery and conspiracy to the obstruction of justice. The judge delivered his sentence a few weeks later. It would be an affront if you were to be at liberty in the near future to enjoy these ill-gotten gains, he said. Eleven of the twelve received harsh sentences of 20 to 30 years. The prisoners immediately started the appeals process. Within five years of the crime, authorities had incarcerated the three men who had evaded arrest during the initial investigation. Bruce Reynolds, Ronald Buster Edwards and James White. But by the time the last of these fugitives arrived in jail, two of the robbers had escaped. Police had anticipated one of these prison breaks. They had considered Charles F. Wilson, a bookmaker dubbed The Silent Man, a security risk after learning that the London Underground had formed an escape committee to free him. In August of 1964, Wilson's associates helped him break out of the Winston Green prison near Birmingham and flee to Canada, where Scotland Yard located and re-arrested him four years later. Ronnie Biggs became the criminal face of the operation after escaping from a London prison in 1965. On one July night, he made his getaway by scaling a wall and jumping into a hole cut in the top of a furniture truck. Biggs fled to Paris, then Australia, before arriving in Brazil in the early 1970s. He lived there until 2001, when he returned to Britain to seek medical treatment for poor health. Authorities arrested him, but after Biggs caught pneumonia and suffered strokes in jail, he received compassionate leave in 2009. He died at the age of 84 this past December. Police recovered approximately 10% of the money, although by 1971, when decimalisation led to a change in UK currency, most of the cash that the robbers had stolen was no longer legal tender. Last year marked the 50th anniversary of the Great Train Robbery, inviting the type of publicity that Gordon Goody chose to spend his life avoiding. One reason that he shares his story now, says Chris Long, is that he has become sick of hearing preposterous things about the crime. In addition to recounting his narrative, Goody agreed to give the filmmakers the Ulsterman's name because he assumed the informant had died. The man had appeared middle-aged in 1963. At the end of A Tale of Two Thieves, Goody is presented with the Ulsterman's picture and basic information about his life. He died years ago. Asked if he is looking at the mastermind of the great train robbery, Goody stares at the photo, winces and shifts in his seat. There is a look of disbelief on his face, as if he is trying to understand how he himself got caught in an act. Goody shakes his head. I've lived with the guy very vaguely in my head for 50 years. The face doesn't look unfamiliar. Gordon Goody's struggle to confirm the identity reveals his discomfort with the concrete evidence before him, and perhaps with his effort to reconcile his commitment to the project with a promise he had made to himself decades ago. Goody could either keep the Ulsterman in the abstract as a legendary disappearing act, or give him a name, and thereby identify a one-time accomplice. He says...
Yes. And if you're interested in a little more about this article, visit the show notes at www.origins.info, click on the Mysteries Abound show notes link, then the link to episode 93 of the Mysteries Abound podcast, and then the link to this article. In this article you will find a short two-minute video and a number of photographs in the form of a slideshow. A container filled with millions of Lego pieces fell into the sea off Cornwall in 1997. But instead of remaining at the bottom of the ocean, they are still washing up on Cornish beaches today, offering an insight into the mysterious world of oceans and tides. From the www.bbc.com, an article by Mario Cassiotolo. The Cornish beaches where Lego keeps washing up. Let me see if I can find a cutlass, says Tracy Williams, poking around some large rocks on Perrin Sands with a stick. She doesn't manage that, but does spot a gleaming white pristine daisy on the beach in Perrinporth, Cornwall. The flower looks good for its age, seeing as it's 17 years old. It is one of 353,264 plastic daisies dropped into the sea on the 13th of February 1997 when the container ship Tokyo Express was hit by a wave described by its captain as a once-in-a-hundred-year phenomenon, tilting the ship 60 degrees one way, then 40 degrees back. As a result, 62 containers were lost overboard, about 20 miles off Land's End, and one of them was filled with nearly 4.8 million pieces of Lego bound for New York. No one knows exactly what happened next or even what was in the other 61 containers. But shortly after that, some of those Lego pieces began washing up in both the north and south coasts of Cornwall. They're still coming in today. A quirk of fate meant that many of the Lego items were nautical-themed, so locals and tourists alike started finding miniature cutlasses, flippers, spear guns, seagrass and scuba gear, as well as the dragons and the daisies. There's stories of kids in the late 1990s having buckets of dragons on the beach, selling them, says Tracy, who lives in New Quay. These days, the Holy Grail is an octopus or a dragon. I only know of three octopuses being found, and one was by me in a cave in Chalaborough, Devon. It's quite competitive. If you've heard that your neighbour has found a green dragon, you'd want to go out and find one yourself. She says the ship's manifest, a detailed list of everything in the containers, shows a whole range of Lego items, not all sea-themed. After all, this time, it's the same old things that keep coming up with the tide, particularly after a bad storm. Tracy runs a Facebook page which documents the Lego discoveries, and recently received an email from someone in Melbourne who found a flipper, which they think could be from the Tokyo Express spillage. U.S. oceanographer Curtis Ebensmeyer has tracked the story of the Lego since it was spilled. The mystery is where they've ended up. After 17 years, they've only been definitely reported off the coast of Cornwall, he says. 
It takes three years for sea debris to cross the Atlantic Ocean from Land's End to Florida. Undoubtedly some Lego has crossed and it's most likely that some has gone around the world. But there isn't any proof that it has arrived as yet. I go to beachcombing events in Florida and they show me Lego. But it's the wrong kind. It's all local stuff kids have left behind. Since 1997, those pieces could have drifted 62,000 miles, he said. It's 24,000 miles around the equator, meaning they could be on any beach on Earth. Theoretically, the pieces of Lego could keep going around the ocean for centuries. The most profound lesson I've learned from the Lego story is that things that go to the bottom of the sea don't always stay there, Ebersmayer adds. The incident is a perfect example of how even when inside a steel container, sunken items don't stay sunken. They can be carried around the world seemingly randomly, but subject to the planet's currents and tides. Tracking currents is like tracking ghosts. You can't see them. You can only see where flotsam started and where it ended up. And just in case you were interested in what was in the cargo, it included toy kits, divers, Aquazone, Aquanauts, Police, Fright Knights, Wild West, Roboforce, Time Cruisers, Outback and Pirates. Spear guns, red and yellow, 13,000. Black Octopus, 4,200. Yellow Life Preserver, 26,600. Diver Flippers, black, blue and red, 418,000. Dragons, black and green, 33,941. Brown Ship Rigging Net, 26,400. Daisy Flowers in fours, white, red and yellow, 353,264. Scuba and Breathing Apparatus in grey, 97,500. A total of 4,756,940 LEGO pieces lost overboard in a single container. An estimated 3,178,807 may be light enough to have floated. And if you're wondering where that information comes from, it's from the Beachcombers Alert, Volume 2, Number 2, 1997. And if you'd like to read a bit more and have a look at photographs of the type of Lego being washed up on the shore, visit the show notes and click on the link to this article. There are quite a few photographs associated with it. For centuries, the Anga tribe of Papua New Guinea's Morobi Highlands have practiced a unique mummification technique. Smoke curing. Once smoked, the mummies aren't buried in tombs or graves. Instead, they are placed on steep cliffs so that they overlook the village below. The very sight of a string of charred red bodies hanging off the mountains might seem quite grotesque. But for the Anger people, it's the highest form of respect for the dead. 
from the www.oddityscentral.com, an article written by Sumitra. The eerie smoked corpses of Papua New Guinea. The process itself is carried out carefully and thoroughly by experienced embalmers. At first, the knees, elbows and feet of the corpse are slit and the body fat is drained completely. Then, hollowed out bamboo poles are jabbed into the dead person's guts and the drippings are collected. These drippings are smeared into the hair and skin of living relatives. Through this ritual, the strength of the deceased is believed to have been transferred to the living. The leftover liquid is saved for later use as cooking oil. In the next stage, the corpse's eyes, mouth and anus are sewn shut in order to reduce air intake and prevent the rotting of the flesh. This is believed to be the key step that ensures the mummies are perfectly preserved for centuries ahead. The soles of the feet, the tongue and the palms are also sliced off and presented to the surviving spouse. The remains of the corpse are then tossed into a communal fire pit and smoke cured. Once thoroughly smoked, the mummy is coated in clay and red ochre, which act as a natural cocoon, protecting the body from decay and scavengers. The process is now complete and the mummy is ready to go on display. Anger men, women and even babies are mummified using the same method. Mummies dating back at least 200 years can still be found in the Morobi Highlands today. During celebrations and events, the mummies might be brought down from the cliffs, only to be returned soon after. A rare honour is bestowed upon dead anger warriors. They remain guardians of the village, even after death. The warrior mummies are placed on special stations on the cliffs. They become watchers who continue to protect the village in the afterlife. One such warrior mummy dates back to World War II, he was bayoneted by the Japanese troops and preserved by the elders. He now stands guard over the Anga tribe, strung up with rope from his bow and arrow. The Anga mummification process can be a scary thing for people who don't understand what the ritual is about. In fact, the curing was banned in 1975, when Papua New Guinea gained its independence. Today, many tribes perform Christian burials, and only a few tribes in remote pockets still prefer to mummify their dead. And if you're interested in some photographs and a short video of the subject, gruesome as it may be, click on the show notes and have a look. Put on your tinfoil hats and special anti-illuminati underwear. A recently discovered mysterious ancient rock structure under the Sea of Galilee, possibly built in the same era as Stonehenge, has archaeologists stumped. To a certain slice of the population, any unexplained man-made rock pile is clearly evidence of an extraterrestrial visit. From the www.popsci.com.au website, an article written by Martha Harbison. Who or what left this 60,000 tonne ancient artefact under the sea? Before we get too carried away, let's look at the actual data. 
The researchers described the cairn as a cone of unhewn basalt rocks, measuring approximately 70 metres in diameter and 10 metres tall. The site itself rests near a now-defunct ancient outlet of the Jordan River, an area that has had economic importance in the area since the Bronze Age. Due to various contextual details, the researchers suspect that the cairn was constructed sometime between the 4th and 3rd centuries BCE. Their findings were published in a recent issue of the International Journal of Nautical Archaeology. The paper is relatively thin on details. To date, the only data the researchers have are on their side-scan sonar images and new photographs from a dive team. No excavations have yet been undertaken, and thus the purpose, age and even how the thing was built are all currently up for debate. The researchers aren't even sure if the cairn was assembled on dry land during a period of low water levels in the lake, or if it was purposefully built underwater. Nearby sites have yielded huts and hearths, indicating that at some point in the past the whole area was above water and inhabited. Other research points to earthquake-related subsidence of the land surrounding the Sea of Galilee, so it is quite possible that all these archaeological sites in the area were built along the lake shore, then submerged after an earthquake shifted the land. These days, the cairn sits about 30 feet underwater, surrounded by schools of tilapia fish. Which brings us to the researchers' theory that this cairn is supposed to be an ancient fishery, a structure that attracts fish, making it easier to catch them and support a large settlement along the shore. Smaller fisheries have been found in the Sea of Galilee, so this theory isn't as far-fetched as one might think. But until the researchers excavate the cairn and determine if it was meant to be underwater, then the purpose of the cairn remains pure conjecture. And this article has a single comment, which tends to make it a little bit more interesting. Banksia man said, Still it looks more like a standard UFO landing port to me. Well, if you'd like to have a look, visit the show notes. There's only one photograph. Rumours have existed since the end of the Second World War that Hitler had either developed flying saucers or had reversed-engineered alien saucers that the Nazis had captured. Now, recent evidence points to an even more sinister event, that Hitler met with alien visitors on a number of occasions. From the coolinterestingstuff.com Did Hitler meet aliens? When Adolf Hitler spread his message of hatred, genocide and oppression, as having been inspired by a blonde race of superhuman warriors referred to as Aryans, it is assumed through historical accounts that this was simply the contrived mythology of a madman. These same accounts omit representation that Adolf Hitler was a member of demonic UFO cult-worshipping cabals, and was an apparent UFO contactee by the same extraterrestrial group which Hitler sought to glorify. The Nazis themselves claimed that an extraterrestrial society was the source of their ideology and the power behind their organisation. 
Nazi mysticism indeed was reportedly a direct product of cult worship to manipulative extraterrestrials. The Nazis referred to their hidden extraterrestrial masters as underground supermen. Hitler believed in the supermen and claimed that he had once met one of them, as did other members of the Tour leadership. Some reports also allege that Adolf Hitler escaped capture by the US and its allies with the assistance of manipulative extraterrestrials. Did Hitler meet E.T.? Below is some evidence that he escaped Berlin. Hitler did not really commit suicide, as some official historical accounts have suggested. In 1952, Dwight D. Eisenhower said, We have been unable to earth one bit of tangible evidence of Hitler's death. Many people believe that Hitler escaped from Berlin. When President Truman asked Joseph Stalin at the Potsdam Conference in 1945 whether or not Hitler was dead, Stalin replied bluntly, No. Stalin's top army officer, Marshal Gregory Zhukov, whose troops were the ones to occupy Berlin, flatly stated after a long thorough investigation in 1945, we have found no corpse that could be Hitler's. The chief of the US trial council at Nuremberg, Thomas J. Dodd, said, no one can say he is dead. Major General Floyd Parks, who was commanding general of the US sector in Berlin, stated for publication that he had been present when Marshal Zhukov described his entrance to Berlin, and Zhukov stated he believed Hitler might have escaped. Lieutenant General Biddle Smith, Chief of Staff to General Eisenhower in the European invasion and later Director of the CIA, stated publicly on October 12, 1945, no human being can say conclusively that Hitler is dead. Colonel W.J. Heimlich, former Chief United States Intelligence at Berlin, stated for publication that he was in charge of determining what had happened to Hitler and after a thorough investigation his report was, there was no evidence beyond that of hearsay to support the theory of Hitler's suicide. He also stated, on the basis of present evidence, no insurance company in America would pay a claim on Adolf Hitler. An article in November 1949 says, The Nazis went underground, May 16, 1943, and details an alleged meeting at the residence of Krupp von Bolenholbeck, the head of IG Farben, and agents said that in the aftermath of World War II, the Nazis had gone underground and were planning for World War III. Another article in August 1952, entitled Hitler Did Not Die, subtitled Hitler's Fake Suicide in His Berlin Bunker, now is exposed as history's greatest hoax. Positive evidence comes to light that Hitler did not die. Here's new evidence that Hitler is alive, directing the Nazi underground today. On a Canadian Broadcasting Corporation program called as it happens, September 17, 1974, at 7.15pm, a professor, Dr. Ryder Seguene, oral surgeon from the dental faculty of the University of California at Los Angeles, said that Hitler had ordered a special plane to leave from Berlin with all medical and dental records, especially X-rays of all top Nazis for an unknown destination. He said that the dental records used to identify Hitler's body were drawn from memory by a dental assistant who reportedly disappeared 
and was never found. And from the paranormal.about.com website, a story by Nick Kay. Black-eyed kids at the front door. I live in Cullman, Alabama. On the 15th of April 2014, I headed out to mow my lawn. In the front of the ditch of my road, I have tons of bushes and flowers neatly set up. To my surprise, someone had come by and stepped over all of my roses. I was deeply upset. The next day I saw two kids walking down my road. Keeping in mind my road has seven houses, so we all know each other. These kids look to be around 12 or 13 year old. I've never seen these kids before. Maybe they were visiting someone was the only thing I could think of. I wanted to go outside and ask them if they messed with my roses. But I figured they're just kids and I'd let it slide this time. The kids stopped walking and just stood on the road right across from my house. That's a good 80 to 90 feet away. They just stood there. I was looking out the window and they were just standing right there. I went to my room to get my shoes and when I came out they were gone. Now this is where everything went to hell right there. It was 8pm and starting to get dark out. My power went off and on a few times. I'm not sure if this had to do with what had happened, but it did freak me out. It finally came back on. At around 8.20 I heard knocking at my front door. Around here people all tend to know each other, so we usually always open the door to see who it is. I turned on my porch light and looked through the little hole in my door. But it was just pitch black, even though the light was on. I don't know why, but I was extremely terrified. I started to put my hand on the handle and I asked, Who's there? Some kid answered, Sorry to bother you, mister, but we are lost and need to borrow your phone. I have a spare cell phone you can borrow for a few minutes, I told them. Let me go and get it and I'll come outside with you. The kid just said, No, you let me in right now. And he started banging on the door. I'm not talking about just hitting it, but it was like some grown man hitting it. I said, Kid, you quit that right now. I got a shotgun and if you try anything, I will shoot. The kid kept screaming, Let me in now. You're making a big mistake. I grabbed the shotgun just in case and held it off to the side of my leg. I put my hand on the lock and unlocked the door. This is where I made my mistake. I opened the door expecting either both those kids or just one kid with a weapon or something. But these weren't little kids. Standing at my door were two people, and both looked 12 or 13. But their eyes were pitch black. I felt terrified again. I felt like putting my shotgun down and letting them in. I'm not sure why I felt that way. As I had the door open for those three or four seconds, the taller kid started to walk forward to come in. I kicked my door shut as hard as I could and I locked it. 
At this point I heard them both crying and screaming in a strange, distorted, high-pitched way, followed by some banging on my door again. I went to check my back door, just to make sure it was still locked. Thankfully my back door was locked, and by the time I headed to my front door, they just stopped. I loaded my shotgun and opened the door, expecting these things. But they were gone. I heard some footsteps and my neighbour was coming by. He had heard some weird screams and came by to check on me. I stood there, probably looking like death with a shotgun in my hand. I let him in and told him the entire event. He told me to call the cops, but I was positive they wouldn't believe me. I never called the cops. He left and I spent the next two days without sleeping. I had no idea what those things were. I sometimes have nightmares about them. I'm not sure if anyone else has ever seen these things, but if you ever do, or you hear kids telling you to open the door, grab a weapon and stay in your house. And also from the paranormal.about.com website, from their True Ghost Stories section, The Legend of the Hoofed Lady by Kihuri. The year was 2004 in the month of July. My close friend of 20 plus years and his cousin were driving to his cousin's home, Lakeipia district that borders the famous Mount Kenya, a mountain that is on the equator, also the home to the Mount Kenya Safari Club. They were caught in heavy afternoon downpour that made them slow down considerably. They had barely driven 10 kilometres on the Nayeri Nayahururu Road when his cousin brought up the subject of the latest phenomenon that had been reported by several people driving on this road. This had happened to more than five different people, hence the reason it had raised much of a concern. They said that drivers on this road found a beautiful lady caught in the rain on a certain stretch of the road. She would indicate to be given a lift, which of course most men would not refuse, it being a rural area. Once in the car and settled, they would notice that the lady they gave a ride to does not have fingers, but hooves instead. The same condition would be for the feet, cloven hooves. When my friend's cousin came up with the story, they did not give it much thought. About 10 kilometres from the point they were discussing the story still in the rain, a lady hailed them for a ride. Carefully, they stopped and checked for the said hooves, and seeing none, they welcomed her inside the car. She introduced herself, and they to her. Eager to find out the truth about the story doing the rounds in the area, they asked her about it since she is from the same place. To their amazement, she answered, Yes, she exists. She has hooves just like these thereby displaying a pair of hands with hooves instead of fingers. They simply stared at each other, unable to say anything. My friend was driving and he couldn't wait to reach the nearest shopping centre. It was still raining when they got there. When the car came to a halt, they actually ran out, leaving the car on the road. And shockingly, looking back from the safety of the nearest shop, the back seat had no occupant. She had simply vanished. They related their ordeal to the people at the shopping centre who confirmed to them that the same had happened to several other people, just as it had happened to them. Their ordeal was not yet over. 
Once they overcame the initial shock, they got in the car to drive off. My friend started the engine, engaged the gear, only to find that the car felt like it was stuck. It could not move an inch. They got out, and while checking on the wheels, the one on the rear left appeared like it was stuck in the tarmac, on a road that is smooth and has no potholes. Yet the tyre was still inflated. They called the same people in the shopping centre to help push the car. They had been watching the drama of the immovable car unfold barely ten metres away. They pushed the car forward. It moved. Yes, but the point at which it had sunk rose up with the movement of the car forward and it became level tarmac again. They pushed it forward. This time it moved with ease and was completely free. They drove off, still wondering what could be ahead of them. My friend's cousin checked one more time on the rear seat and noticed something odd. If someone wet enters the car, you would expect water on the floor mat and on the seat. But there was none. The car seat was completely dry. So was the mat. From that point on, it was smooth all the way to his cousin's home. They chose not to relate their ordeal to anyone, lest they appear silly. That day, both of them missed their dinner. They were too shocked to eat. My friend still laments that that being shouldn't have chosen to torture them the way it did. To date, he does not give lifts to strangers. I knew it, my friends all knew it, and everyone at school knew it, but no one would believe us. School was quite the truth hanging everywhere. The other students silently drifted from class to class. No one really spoke all that much anymore. Between each period there was a brief and hushed march of bodies before the halls died again. All but a few teachers seemed to not really care they enjoyed the silence. The teachers who did care did not know how to help, or even what to say. It had started a few days after Zach Thompson drowned. His girlfriend, Mallory Andrew, said that someone dragged him into the sea, pulled him right off their boat. No one was there to see it, and she could not tell anyone what the person looked like. So when Zach's body floated in, drowned but unharmed, Everyone wrote her off. A few days later, Mallory went missing. No one has seen her since. From the creepypasta.com website, a story attributed to Ryan Austin Gray. Mermaid. I did not really know Zach or Mallory. A few of my friends knew them though, and they seemed nice enough. No one should ever have to drown. The thought of falling into the Atlantic, the darkness everywhere, the liquid pouring into my lungs, it terrified me. I hated to think what Zack felt as his legs flailed half a mile above the nearest ground. Did he just breathe in to get over with it? Or did he keep holding his breath as long as he could? 
My friends who knew them joined the first wave of morning zombies that populated the high school. They all remembered listening to Mallory's tear-stained story of the hand and the splash, the screaming, the eyes. A few days later, Matt Miller was found caught in the framing of his parents' dock. Apparently, Matt had gone out in the night to look at the water and fell over. The police say that is when his shirt got caught. I did not know Matt Miller that well either. He was never that nice to me. To be honest, he was an asshole. But you never hear about that stuff after the fact. You only get to hear the nice stories about what a great person they were. It was then that the school moved in a small fleet of counsellors and social workers to help with feelings. The lines to talk to someone stretched out into the hall at first. It was maybe a week before Aubrey Strong drowned. She was found naked and bruised along the beach. Her lungs were filled with water. Her sister Tammy had been there when something attacked them. She told the police it had grabbed Aubrey and ran off. A few days later, Tammy's story had changed from something to someone. Her body was found the next day at the same beach as her sister, still wearing the same clothes from school. The city began hiring more lifeguards, strict curfews were put in place at all beaches and students were questioned mercilessly by police and teachers. Students stopped going to the counsellors. The meetings began to feel more like interrogations than anything else. Then Mark Sawyer and Ashley Corey died on the same night. I was with Mark Sawyer. He was my best friend. We were playing Call of Duty and eating pizza in his bedroom. He was winning. I had been tracking him for the ten whole minutes across the desert and my sight was lined up on his guy's back. Then the lights went out. The TV made a weird whistling noise before falling black and silent. What the hell, I said to him as he stood up and began messing with the light switches. He never had a chance to respond. I froze in terror when I heard it slap up the stairs and saw its hand reach around the doorframe. The smell like under the docks. Mark could not move either as the net fell over him. I listened to his scream as he thudded down the stairs, one step at a time. I ran home. I slammed my bedroom door shut behind me. I never said a word. The next day, Mark Sawyer and Ashley Corey were added to the list of people. Both of them were found in the shallows by a fisherman. Amanda Stoner had been with Ashley Corey when it happened. She spent all day being tossed around by counsellors and police officers. Amanda told them about a man who ran at them and how they had struggled with him on the beach. I could not speak to anyone. The words refused to leave my lips. Whenever I tried, I saw Mark fall beneath the net, his fingernail scratching at his bedroom door. And then I saw him drowning, his legs kicking in an endless void of darkness. Did he breathe in? Or did he hold on for as long as he could? The teachers looked on me with pity. They did not know what I had seen. The counsellors made sure that I knew their doors were always open. They did not know that I had been with Mark Sawyer. I could not say a word to anyone. Anyone but Amanda. Hey, 
I said to her at the lunch table. We had never met. She was very pretty with dark hair and brown eyes and large, gorgeous lips. The kind of girl I would usually have to build up my courage to talk to. The kind of girl I probably just wouldn't talk to. She looked up at me, dismissive. Then she saw a look in my eyes. She stretched out and took my hand in hers. You saw them, she whispered. I nodded. Again, Amanda told her story. It was just like mine. The hand, the screaming, the eyes. From then on, the two of us were inseparable. I sat next to her with my beige lunch tray, and that was that. We waited for each other on the bus in the morning. We met again after school. At night, when we had to leave for our own houses, we sat on our phones. Eventually, we even began to talk about other things. We tried to forget. We had seen them. Everyone who saw them disappeared. As the month went on, the drownings turned into disappearances. For some reason, the creatures were no longer happy just killing. They now took their victims away, never to be seen again. The sea left us with a new empty desk every other week or so. Amanda and I were not sure why the creatures from the water left us alone. Maybe it was because both of our houses were inland, or maybe because we were the only survivors who banded together. Fall came and the leaves transformed into brilliant New England reds and golds, leaving a sad magic in the air. When our town's annual October festival arrived, most people could not find the heart to attend. Our tragedy had become so long-lasting, we barely even made the news anymore when a new child went missing and a melancholy sunk its fingers into the entire town. But Amanda and I went. We walked close, passing beneath the large banner that hung above the boardwalk. Pumpkins and gourds and bundles of straw festively adorned the walkway, placed along the streetlights and the porches of the homes that looked out over the sea. Fishermen worked at large vending stalls and craft displays sold wares all the way down to the docks, punctuated by the occasional carnival game or food stand selling funnel cakes and grease. But it was quiet. Amanda took my hand and pulled me along to everything she wanted to see. We had both seen it every year before, but that day was different. When she took my hand, I felt my heart leap back to life, and when I won her a giant teddy bear, I could not stop smiling. Neither could she. Then something happened. We began to laugh. The people around us smiled, and the moment of happiness infected everyone. The vendors began shouting to the people passing by, proclaiming their fish was the best, or how could you not find a necklace like theirs? People began coming out of their homes. The carnival games had lines stretching back into the streets. Little children laughed as their parents swung them from between their hands and everyone forgot. That night as the sun set behind us and people began heading home, Amanda and I sat on a black bench, barely big enough to fit us both and her teddy bear looking out across the water. I did not even realise that we had been holding each other's hands all day. Then she leaned in and kissed me. It was short and sweet, and when she stopped she gave me a shy, embarrassed grin. 
It was the best day I could remember. In the coming weeks the temperature began to drop and the first flurry of snow descended on our town. The disappearances began happening more frequently and sadness evolved into pure terror. With the attacks growing in frequency, many people began to leave, some not even waiting for their homes to sell, and others leaving everything behind. I came home one day to my parents beginning a stack of cardboard boxes in the living room. Neither of them said anything. We all understood. But all I could think about was leaving Amanda behind. That night, awoken by the sound of a frenzied dog, I saw something from my bedroom window as I looked out across an increasingly desolate town. The front gate of the yard had been opened, its lock twisted off, the black iron smacking into the fence as the wind swung it back and forth along its creaking hinges. It walked like a man with a slow, heavy stride. The creature was tall and bulky, its wide torso resting on legs as thick as tree trunks. I could not get a clear look through the darkness, but its eyes, the size of a small dinner plate, reflected flashes of light from the street. I dropped to the floor and peered from the corner of the window. I watched as the thing walked towards the front door, quietly fiddled with the doorknob, and then began pacing along the first floor windows. At each one it tested their weights, figured out which windows were locked and which ones were not. Then, satisfied, it walked back through the gate, back to the water. I told my parents I had seen someone sneaking around the house in the night. They called the police. The police took my statement and a description of a large man in the shadows. My mum began packing faster that day and my father put a hand on my shoulder, looked me in the eyes and promised he would protect me. I knew it would be back for me. Later on, just as the sun was beginning its descent, I packed a backpack, left through my fence with the broken lock and headed for Amanda's. The creatures had never attacked an adult. My parents would be fine. But for me, my home was no longer safe. They would drag me away like Mark. They scouted my house last night, I said as Amanda let me inside. She was scared. We both were. She led me to her bedroom where we talked about my parents getting ready to move and she told me that her parents were planning to head up to New York. I can't leave you, she told me as she wrapped our arms around each other. After dinner she told her parents that I had left and hid me away in her bedroom. We stayed up late, lying on her bed, watching the movies she had on her shelves and kissing whenever either of us built up the courage. Periodically... I would stand and look out of her window to the town where the ocean fog obscured lights that lit empty streets. No one walked the stone pathways, and most of the homes had gone dark. If I stood at the right angle, I could spot the water from the ocean peacefully washing into the shore. When we fell asleep, my arm was wrapped around her waist, and her fingers curled over my hand and rested in my palm. The room was dark when I woke to a dog barking in the distance. The light from the television cast the room in a pale flickering glow. I reached out to touch Amanda, and when my hand felt nothing but the blankets, my heart began to pound in my chest. I shut up from the bed. The room smelled like stale water, and the carpet was wet. 
I darted to the window where along the beach I could see several figures dragging another. Without a second thought I raced down the stairs and slammed through the front door. By the time Amanda's parents were flipping on the light in their bedroom, my desperation had carried me halfway through the town. Ahead I could hear the whispering roar of the waves. And Amanda, she was screaming. No, I cried as my feet touched the sand. Leave her alone. The creatures turned to look at me, stopping only a few feet before touching the water. Amanda struggled beneath the tangled weight of an organic-looking fishing net, the rope of which was resting in the clenched fist of the last creature. They were all large, muscled humanoids, with massive webbed feet and hands. They stared at me with fish-like eyes and flattened faces. The cross between man and piranha. Each one carried a large spear that they aimed at me as I approached. I stopped and lifted my hands into the air when one of them let out a hollow call like a wail and threatened me with a long barbed weapon. The creature with Amanda protectively lifted her over its shoulder like she weighed nothing and held her away from me. One of the monsters moved towards me, its feet thudding against the ground and kicking up a wave of sand with each step. It stopped a foot in front of my nose and bared a row of sharp teeth and with one of its great arms it motioned towards the net and then pounded its clawed fist against its scaled chest. No, no, please, I clasped my hands together and fell to my knees. My begging did nothing as the creatures turned and continued their slow march back towards the water. I screamed for someone to help. When I saw Amanda struggle, digging her nails frantically into the sand, I lunged forward only for the one who denied me to hurl my body away. I smacked into the sand, shouting and screaming at them. Tears flooded over my face that twisted in rage. Take me, I roared over the thunder of the ocean. Take me instead. The creature I spoke at before turned to see me with my hands held out in front of me in surrender. It gave another hollow call, halting its party. Take me, I demanded. It paused a moment, staring at me with its gigantic eyes. Then it took a sharpened blade of coral and sliced through the rope that its companion held. Immediately Amanda rushed from the net and flew into my arms. I held her for as long as I could, breathing her in, before the creature grabbed me by the arm and pulled me away. Amanda screamed and chased after us, only to be flung back by another of the terrible creatures. When she tried again, the one holding me aimed his blade towards her. Amanda, it's okay, I told her as my feet hit the water. It's okay. The water came to my waist. Promise me you'll leave this place. She fell to her knees, sobbing. Promise me, I yelled. She promised beneath a shower of tears and helpless screams. The water lapped at my chin as the monster continued to drag me below. I tugged back one last time to cry out above the cold blackness. Amanda, I love you. Instantly the surface shot away above me. I remembered Mark and so many others, how they fought helplessly as they vanished beneath the sea. Did they breathe in? Or did they hold on for as long as they could? As I watched the world above me rip through my fingertips, falling deeper and deeper into the ocean, I could only think of Amanda. And I held on. I held on for as long as I could.
The music for today's podcast came from the musicalley.com. The bandwidth is provided by Talkshoe at www.talkshoe.com. The show notes are kept at the Origins podcast website, www.origins.info. Information about the podcast can be found on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash Paul Rexy or at the Facebook link on the show notes. And a big thank you to these people who have recently given a donation to my podcasts. Michael Ashenbach, Benjamin Bury, Sean Yarnell, Christopher McGarvey, Joseph Lavender, Lawrence Westerman, Geoffrey Shaw, Adam Homewood and David Nelson. A big thank you everyone. Your help and support is greatly appreciated. Well everyone, that unfortunately for me and hopefully for you as well brings a close to episode 93 of the Mysteries Abound podcast. Hope you enjoyed today's show and until next time, whatever the podcast may be, this is Paul saying bye for now and keep well everyone. Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. <gasps> no, Lucky Land Casino with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. 
Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.